Amen. You may be seated. I've said since the war that's going on in Israel, I wanted whoever teaches to read the Psalms. And so, of course, I forgot the last time I taught. Really, I didn't forget. I knew it was going to be kind of long, so I didn't read the Psalms. But I got you today. It doesn't matter. Uh, If I can find it on my phone. Psalm of David, Psalms 10. Uh, I'm only going to read probably about five verses of it. I'm reading from the NIV. And the only reason I'm reading from the NIV this morning, I told you guys probably a month month and a half ago, that Morgan de Avila, we had had a contest at the Pride Church I went to. We were going to name this room. This room was called... Well, she got the verse from Psalms, it's Psalms 10, and she, the name of her portrait of what she did, the name was Room for God. I'm going to read it in its context. This is what it says in Psalms 10. Uh, Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. Who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. That was all of us at one time. No room for God was in our hearts until the mighty grace of Jesus Christ came in and shown the glorious gospel of Jesus. So those that know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, we can be thankful for that. And if you have any friends or family that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, please continue to pray. That's the key, prayer. We're in Hebrews chapter 1. We'll pick up at verse 4. The writer of Hebrews, what he's done, he's taken and established in the first three verses the superiority of Jesus. And, you know, as I was reading through this text to help us understand some of what he's trying to get us to understand in these next few verses, I'll pose these questions to you. Think about them. Would you rather have a nicely cooked filet mignon today for lunch? Maybe medium well, the nice baked potato? Or would you rather have a Fried piece of spam. They tell me in Korea, spam is a delicacy. How about for dinner? Would you rather have a nice, and I have to put my little flavor in here, lasagna, because I love lasagna. A nice lasagna dinner, or would you rather have a congealed, nice room temperature duck egg? That's also a delicacy in China. They would pass over that nice steak. They would pass over that nice lasagna to get the duck egg. Or would you rather in your garage, my wife can attest to this, have a nice metallic blue Silverado with everything on it loaded? Would you rather have that? Or would you rather have a chewing cow? in the garage. In India, 
they would choose the cow because it's sacred. And the reason I tell you all of this, the problem is what you would prefer and what you value has everything to do with your background and your culture. The problem that we face as Christians, every time we open the Bible, we go back 2,000 years or more. And in Hebrews chapter 1, the author is trying to make an argument that Jesus of Nazareth is better than the angels. And that is a problem we run into all the time as we try to study the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews as 21st century American Christians. We look at this text and we say, what a simplistic question. Why would they even ask that? Whether we think Jesus of Nazareth is better than the angels. And I'm thinking for most of us, it's it's really a no-brainer. If I ask you this question, you would say, come on, man, you know Jesus is better. And we'd say, yeah, you're right. And you'd probably have never been tempted to value or to choose angels over Jesus. Not a problem for you. Never a temptation for you. Let's just face it. You haven't really thought about angels in the last month or two, I'm sure. If you are a first century Jewish person raised in Saturday Sabbath school, and you had studied and understood the high and lofty position of angels in their meteorial role, you're really telling me a carpenter from Nazareth is greater than the angels? That's what they were struggling with. Matter of fact, you might need two chapters of convincing And that's exactly what we have in the book of Hebrews. You know, it it can be difficult to preach because I'm here trying to follow the text, the flow, the argument. Say, well, here's what this chapter is all about. Jesus is better than the angels. And you go, okay, is that all you got this morning? We already knew that. But here's the problem. We may not need the point of the argument. But we do need the components of the arguments for this chapter. The things that the writer of Hebrews says, for two chapters, he's convincing these Jews that Jesus is better than the angels, so it must be important. So this was an issue for them. And our first challenge this morning, before we get really rolling into the book, let us at least try to appreciate the comparison Let's at least try to understand why these first century Jews, who's really reading the same Old Testament that you are, had a hard time understanding Jesus has more access. He has a free pass, and he's greater than the angels. And so far for us this morning, I'm going to try a little and give you a little background on these angels as we read this text. Because for them, it was a real problem. And I think it should be a bigger deal than it is with us. I think we should start to say, well, who are these angels? What are they all about? And why is being better than, all, than an angel a big deal at all anyway? Well, in Old 
in the Old Testament Jewish worship, you get the picture loud and clear. Because even just to get in Jerusalem, as we've been going through the book of Nehemiah, you had to go through the gates. Then you had to go up to the temple. And then you would get to the outer courts. Then you'd go to the court of the Gentiles, the court of women. You've got the court of men also. Then you've got the place where the priests can go. And then you've got the outer room. And then you've got the holy place. And then you get to the holies of holies. And there's a box there. And on that box is supposed to be the manifestation of the presence of God. But the bottom line is, there's a lot of fences, there's a lot of boundaries between you and that box. And here's the news flash: You ain't getting in. That's the problem. The angels are, though. Matter of fact, it's the place where the high priest once a year goes in with his knees shaking as he goes in for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he offers a sacrifice telling us, that God is unapproachable. You're not going to have a meeting with God. Now, we know when Jesus Christ was resurrected, the the veil of the temple was torn, giving way to free access to Jesus Christ, the Son. But for these first century Jews, they were still having a hard time convincing themselves that this is true. So let's try and sort through it this morning. The components of the arguments are very important. Matter of fact, if you have your Hebrew text open to the chapter 1 of verse 4, after the introductory statement, that's what we looked at last Sunday, verse 4 says, having become. Just think, from verse 4 to the end of chapter 2, he's really explaining the angels, And what a big deal they are. Having become so much better than the angels, because the angels were, they were in God's presence, and that's what the writer is trying to get us to understand. As he, speaking of Jesus, by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Through the remainder of the next two chapters, the author establishes the superiority of Jesus. He then goes on to describe it, and he talks about the sonship of Jesus of Nazareth compared to the servant nature of these angels. And he starts talking about the fact that these angels don't quite have the intimacy, relationship, and access to God that the son has. The son is far superior. If I wanted to, and that's the key word, if I, and, and I should, if I wanted to meet President Biden and I'd have a lot to say to him, could I call him up and speak to him? I don't think so. But Lloyd Austin could, his defense secretary, Ron Klain, his chief of staff, could call him up and he would answer the phone. Whether he had his feet up watching the Golden Girls, I think he would take that call. But what about Hunter Biden? If he called, 
and say, Dad, I need to talk to you. He's going to put those other two men down, and he's going to pick up his phone, and he's going to want to know what Hunter has to say. That's all we're looking at this morning. He has access to Joe Biden. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get these first century Jews to understand. It ain't what you know. My dad used to tell me this all the time, and I used to brush it off. But as I lived, when I need something done, if I know the right person, I can go get it done. It's not what you know, it's who you know. That's the way it goes. Paul was forced to address this same problem in his letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 8 and 10. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. And I'm reading from the NIV here. And not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Speaking of Jesus, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That there are those teachers, even today, in those days, that were saying, you know, listen, we're frail human beings. We will never be able to have an intimate relationship with God. Let's just face it. As high or as close as we're going to get to God is the angels. Paul says that's foolishness. That's why he says it sounds truly spiritual, but Paul announces it as false humility. It's just pure nonsense. Jesus has called us to a personal relationship with God. Jesus paid a tremendous cost. For us to be able to have a one-on-one personal relationship with the true and living God. Even though now 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says it perfectly, we're not seeing him face to face. 1 Corinthians says, for now we see in a mirror dimly. We have to pray and we have to make sure and we're reading the word as we say, okay, Lord, did I hear from you right? But one day when he speaks, Everything will be clear. And let's not waste a moment of time worshiping even the greatest of his creation, angels, or anything else. Now, there were all through the history of Judaism, read your Bible, different sects that had long history of fascination with angels, and they had developed a very, very detailed angelology, the study of angels. They, they, they believed that if you met an angel and you spoke to an angel, you were someone that had it pre- pretty figured out. Matter of fact, if you remember in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God put the cherub at the gate of the garden, keeping mankind away. In Genesis 18, there's Abraham, remember, under the terebinth tree. He loved being under these trees that they were planted in Mambry. And remember, he was sitting by his tent door and three men come walking by. One of them we know was Jesus Christ. The other two were angels. So that's another picture of the regard people have for angels. We can never forget Balaam 
wanting the money, wanting the bag, as a lot of people do. Balaam threw everything away to go try to put a curse on the children of Israel. But he must have, you know, he must have really taken care of his donkey pretty well. He must have fed him regularly. He must have brushed him and gave him a bath regularly. Because when the donkey, who did he see? He saw an angel standing in the way, an angel with his sword drawn, ready to kill Balaam. So he goes up against the wall. He, he, he smashes Balaam's foot, and Balaam begins to hit him and probably says some unkind words to him. And remember, the, the donkey speaks and says, have, have I ever did this before? I've been a good donkey to you, Balaam. Why would you beat me? He must have been really out of it because he speaks back to the donkey. <laughs> but once again, that shows you the fascination of these angels in the Old Testament. We can all remember it. It, it fascinated me the first time I, I read that uh, one angel wasn't the archangel Michael. There's only one archangel. That's Michael. But one angel, we'll call his name Larry, slaughtered 185,000 men in one night just to secure Israel. So they had a, my point is they had a fascination with angels. If you remember, in the holies of holies, as you would go in, the most holy place too, as you would go in, David said on the curtain, what was on the curtains? Engraved, embroidered, was pictures of angels all on the curtains, showing you that in the temple in heaven, angels are all around God, praising and worshiping. We find out in Job, they have a board meeting. Some angels says, okay, where do you want, what, what do you want me to do? And God is explaining to them what he wants to do, and they're ruling over Syria. They're ruling over the archangel, I believe, rules over Israel. So they have mighty, powerful jobs. And they would take care of a man, a human being, right away. And so that was the fascination with angels. But what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get these Hebrews to understand, and remember, even on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, there was two molded angels, wings touching. Angels are all around God, and that was their fascination. But now, one greater than the angels have come, Jesus Christ. And he's trying to get them to understand, hey, there's someone greater than the angels. There's someone who has an inside scoop to what God is saying, and that is God the Son. So verse 4 says, and he begins to speak of the superiority of Jesus to angels. He says, having become so much better... Nothing wrong with angels, just Jesus is much better. Matter of fact, he's infinitely better. Having become so much better than the angels as he, speaking of Jesus, has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And before I get started, let me say this. If you have the question, why are we spending so much time talking about these angels? Doesn't everybody know this? 
No, everybody doesn't know this. And not everybody knew this 2,000 years ago. They don't even know it today. Jehovah Witnesses teach that Jesus was Michael the archangel. They put Jesus on the same level as an angel. Mormons make Jesus out to be a cherub, the brother of Lucifer. So we look at this chapter and say, well, what's the big deal? Why spend so much time, you know, developing it like this and all of this stuff? Because of the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 is given for many reasons, many reasons. But one of those reasons is to cause every single person in those two religious systems and any system like them to recognize what the lie they are believing. So there's life in this room. There's always life and death in the room associated with the word of God. The stakes are very high. God is not just saying things to be saying them. I tell you all the time. So we're told in verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they, than they. Uh, excellent name because of his superior relationship to the Father, which he now goes into. Verse 5, he says, for which, and God the Father is speaking here, for which of the angels did he, that's the Father, ever say, you are my son? That comes from 2 Samuel 7, 11, today I have begotten you, and that's from Psalms 2. One word may not seem to hold a lot of power, However, one word can, can, can break a moment. It can change the trajectory of your life. One word can make a difference in defining God. Something that maybe many Christians know, maybe they don't know, but in the Quran, the word beget in the exact, is used in the exact opposite way in the Bible. Shouldn't be a surprise. In the Quran, page 112, it says, he begets not, speaking of Yahweh. And then to add a little more salt to the womb, he says, nor was Jesus Christ begotten. That automatically turns us the opposite way. This is the exact opposite of what God has told us in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what is the meaning of this word begotten? If Muslims are reading and believing that God has never begotten anyone, and believers say, yes, he's begotten Jesus Christ, the gospel is summed up in John 3.16 that Jesus was God's only begotten son. Now, this word begotten plays a vital role in understanding who the Lord is and what we believe. Monogonais is the word for begotten. Monogonais. It's the Greek word for only begotten. Monog means only, and gonos means kind of race. When the two are put together, the word means only kind or unique, speaking of Jesus Christ. 
That is Jesus. He is the only begotten. He's the unique son of God. Monogamous is not referring to him being created or conceived as if Jesus wasn't eternal. We already know he was always eternal. We say Jesus is God, yet within the Trinity, God the Father declared the second person of the Trinity to be called the Son when he took on human flesh in order to become our Savior. This is important to know since there's no one like our God. Jeremiah 10, 6 says, Inasmuch as there is none like you, O Lord, you are great and your name is great in might. Jesus was begotten. He was the only son of God the Father. John 1, 1 tells us, In the beginning was the word, and that's Jesus, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus was the word. He has always existed with the Father. However, this is the key, Jesus became a man since Adam sinned. Jesus is the son of the living God. Once again, John 1.14 tells us, the word became flesh and dwelt, that word is tabernacled, among us. We have seen his glory, it goes on to say, the glory of the one and only monogamous son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. God never said that an angel, he said that of an angel. He never called an angel his son. He says, and again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And it's very interesting that God does in a couple of places in the Old Testament refer to the angels as the sons of God. But that's in their ministry, and it's in the plural. They are his sons in that regard. They are his creation. But he never speaks of a single angel as in the individual or in the singular as being his son. Jesus, once again, is uniquely God's son in a way that no angel could ever be. So he is unique and superior, and that the Father calls him what he is. Verse 6 tells us, but when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So when Jesus was born into this world, the angels worshiped him. And, and the reason that that's significant is the inferior always worships the superior. And by virtue of the angels worshiping Jesus, you know, it was a confession on their part that they have no problem at all with it. Even when he was the babe of Bethlehem, a little child, we know the account, they worshiped him because he's God the Son. And if the son was not divine, he is not God. Then you have the angels, you have calling him God, committing idolatry. So by virtue of the fact that he commands the angels to worship his son is a revelation that Jesus is divine and he's greater. And it gets definitively more clear as we read this. Verse 7 says, And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits 
and his ministers a flame of fire. Now, we know that angels are awesome. People, they write books about angels. I've never seen an angel. I think an angel has saved my life a couple of times, but I've never seen them. And really, I don't want to see one. Because every time I read in the Bible of a man seeing an angel, they fall out as if they're dead. They can't move and all those things. So I can do without that. My heart is not that good. I know we entertain angels, Hebrews will tell us. He's going to talk about that a little bit further. But in the book of Revelation, an angel in the great tribulation period has one foot on the earth and one foot in the sea. That's a huge, that's a huge angel, an awesome angel. And these angels, they're engaged with doing things and working in the spiritual realm. There's angels here right now, probably fighting against our lethargy, probably fighting demonic forces who's trying to get you to think of what you'll be doing tomorrow and all those things. God, we know, once again, he dispatches angels because in the book of Job, when they're around the big board meeting table, he sends this angel to do this. He sends that angel to do that. So they're working with God. And, of course, God could do it, but he has these angels working for him. So that's why the Jews were so intrigued with the angels. He said, who makes his angels spirits? No telling what they're doing right now. And his ministers a flame of fire. Verse 8, but to the Son... He says, your throne, O God, the Father calling the Son God, is forever and ever. And you should circle that. He says, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. That shows how holy the Godhead is. That shows how humble the Godhead is. I was thinking of presidents and so-called kings and everybody. They would probably have a, a scepter of platinum, a scepter of gold, maybe a scepter of silver. But God carries a scepter of righteousness. That's what he boasts in. It's amazing to me. You know, in this thousand-year reign of Christ, when he comes back, it isn't going to be a king that's ruling anymore, but Jesus Christ. There won't be any TV. I don't know if we'll be, even be watching TVs at the time, going to movies at the time. If it is, it's going to be a, a G movie. All the movie would be G, and it'd be so easy going and all. But my point is, cops won't be playing on TV. There won't be a, the summer of 20 and 21 happening once again because he will be ruling in righteousness. Nobody, they won't be playing the knockout game that they play now. He's boasting on his righteousness. And he says, you have loved righteousness. Do you love righteousness? Do you truly love righteousness? 
As we grow closer to Jesus, as we walk with him more, we should love righteousness more. When we see uh, uh, humanity going in the wrong direction, it should break our hearts, and we should be saddened, and we should be praying for humanity. This is my third time saying this, and I will probably say it three more times, going through the book of Hebrews. But I know the days are short. I know the days are short because anyone who speaks to me for a while, I always bring up Israel, and I can't believe how many people are protesting what's going on when these people have been tragically massacred in Israel. And how many people, especially in the United States, it's happening in Europe too, are protesting that Israel is occupying the Palestinians' land. And it's really Hamas is the culprit of all this. And if you get farther to it, I don't want to go into politics. Iran is the culprit to it, the Persians. And God, there's all peace and quiet around his throne. And he wants the Christian today not to be fearful, not to rumble and get upset, because I can hear him saying Psalms too, yet I have set my king on his holy hill. It's going to be okay. And there's many times as I see the news, I'm saying, these are dummies out here doing all this stuff. It's crazy. Bring your children up in the word of God. Let them know the truth about the word. I'm amazed. Well, I'm not amazed. I was telling Pat, I'm not amazed that at the age they had a, a graph, a chart out. They said at the age of when you hit 60 on up, all of that age group were riding with Israel. It's when you hit 25 on down, all of them are riding with the Palestinians. And in the middle of that group, they don't know and they don't know. I heard someone very close to me ask me, what do you think, what, what do you think about the Jews and what's going on? Very close to me. And I knew I should hold my peace, and I did. I said, what do you think about it? Well, you know, they've been occupying that land for so long. I knew I, I couldn't speak up then. I'll have to come back another day. But I said, Read your Bible. Read your Bible. You can never get it twisted if you read your Bible. And remember, this is the word of God. They have slants on everything in the news media, including Fox News. They can slant things. But you've got to dig in and you've got to read it for yourself. But really, you only need to read one thing. The truthful, unadulterated word of God. It will never lead you astray. And I'm saddened by that. And that's why I said, you have loved righteousness. That's the God we serve. He's a righteous God, long-suffering God, and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. I like the King James. The King James says, more than your fellows. When you do right, you feel right. That's why Jesus feels so good. That's why the Godhead, 
I feel are laughing all the time unless they look at humanity and they begin to weep about that. Because if you're living a righteous life and no matter what comes your way, you're going to be propped up by Jesus Christ. He's our righteousness. So the Father is calling Jesus God. Nowhere, you're not going to get a greater testimony than that. If you have the Father calling the Son God, then the, the, de- the deity of Christ is indisputable. It's absolute. That's what's, and that's what the writer of Hebrews is intending to do. And then notice you think, wow, it can't get any better than this. And it does in verse 10. He says, and you, Lord. And that word Lord is kurios in the Greek, but it's also Yehovah, the Father talking to the Son. It's all the way through this. And, and he says, and you, speaking of Jesus, and you, Jehovah, that's what he calls him, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth. The Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons, they don't believe Jesus is divine. They don't believe that he's God. They believe that he is an angel and witnessing to them. When I'm witnessing to them, when they come knocking on my door, and I love when they come knocking on the door, I've, if, if, if you've heard me say this before, hear it again, because I got this from Chuck Swindoll as I was l- listening many years ago to some of his cassettes. And he says, I don't even give them a hearing. He said, don't give them a hearing because usually they come prepared. And I don't take it as far as Chuck Swindoll do, but I study my words. So, you know, I like to invite them in because by the grace of God, I know enough of the word to know they're going to have a hard time combating me. And so that's what's happening here. They don't believe he's God. They believe that he's an angel and witnessing to them. You don't have to convert them. All you have to do is lay your case, present your case, and sow some seeds of doubt in their mind. Because their salvation, the Mormons or the Jehovah Witnesses, is based upon works. And ours, the Christian, we know it's a free gift. Jesus has given himself to us. And so if you stand on my doorstep to tell me that he is not God and that he is an angel, and if you're going to force me to believe in one or three others' opinion, I'm not going to take your opinion. I'm going to believe Father, Spirit, and Son, what they say of Jesus. I'll take their testimony He says, unless you believe that I am, Jesus speaking, you're going to die in your sins. He says there, unless you believe I'm Jehovah, I'm God, you're going to die in your sins. We have to understand when Jesus died on the cross, the reason that he provided salvation is not because he died on the cross. It's who he died on the cross for us. Remember, Jesus says this, behold, John says this as he sees Jesus coming to him to be baptized. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It wasn't that Jesus died up there on the cross, but that a perfect, sinless man 
died, who was God on the cross. And I, I put my total trust in who he is. If not, there's no forgiveness of sin. Jesus is God. God died that day on the cross. God is still trying to reach people today. There's still the same heresies. It's still the same things that are drawing people away from the truth and from a personal relationship with, with God. And he says again in verse 10, and you, Lord, God the Father speaking, and you, Jehovah, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. So he again declares Jesus to be God, something he would ever say to an angel. He would never say that. Verse 11, they will perish, but you will remain, and they will grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed, but you are the same. You know, even the heavens and the earth, and you know about the earth, is contaminated with sin. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth when Jesus comes back. It's not going to be as beautiful, and there's a lot of beautiful places on this earth, and I'm sure you've been to a few, and it can be nice, and it can be pleasant, and it can just a beautiful clear blue day and the weather's nice, but it's still contaminated by sin. And Jesus, he's going to give us a new heaven and a new earth one of these days. He says in verse 13, but to which of the angels has he ever said, making a point, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? And the short answer is none. He has never said that to an angel. He never will because they're not his son. Showing Jesus' superiority over the angels. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? To serve God, that's what the angels are for. And his work surrounding people. You know, I don't know if you know this, you probably do. God, the reason there's no salvation for angels, when the angels sin, when, when, when the great cherub Satan sinned, all those that went with him moved over to his camp, demons and all that now. And all those that stay with Christ are still with Christ. And my point is, they had their choice right then and there. Another thing, I used to think until I tasted the grace of God, even at the age of eight and nine, okay, why am I blamed for Adam's sin? I, I could never wrap my head around it. Why? That's like me saying, Mama, why am I getting a whipping when Doug did it? Which usually it was the opposite way anyway. I felt sorry for my brother. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. And I could never figure that out until I tasted the grace of God. Okay, if you want to play it that way, I'm going to send my son down here who's going to live a perfect life. And all you have to do is believe on him, and I give you his righteousness. You can't beat that. Who would not go for that? Who would not go for that? 
So I, I can't use that game anymore. Well, I didn't sin. Adam sinned. No. I don't have righteousness, not one little bit. But once again, I know who has righteousness, who never has sinned in word, thought, and deed. I might can make it indeed one day a week. I might can make it in words seven days a week, but thoughts, it gets me all the time. Oh, look at that dummy. He shouldn't have pulled over in front of me. And I say something real quick. Yeah, my thoughts are terrible. But I want to show you against this black backdrop the holiness of God. We can never attain to his holiness. Word, thought, or deed. That's why when, when you give your life to Jesus and he washes you in his blood, you're redeemed. Past, present, and future sins, you're redeemed. That's potent blood there. No angel could ever do that. No being as good as you can be could ever do that. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can do that, you guys. That's why he's so much better than the angels. The worship team can come up. Like I said, this is important because in chapter 1, from verse 4 on down until you end chapter 2, we won't harp on this anymore. We're about to ride through this. But he's speaking. Go back and read it. He's speaking about angels. Because they have an affinity. They, 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 they've been taught angels are this and angels are close to God and all this. And then here comes this little babe from Bethlehem saying, hey, angels are nothing. You can, uh, in the ranking, they're placed somewhere, but they're not me. I'm his son. Once again, I cannot pick up the phone and call Joe Biden, but Hunter can. That's what it is with Jesus Christ. We have access only through Jesus Christ, you guys. We can tell him of our heartaches. We can tell him of our sorrows. We can tell him of our pains. We can tell him what's going on in our good times and bless it. Thank you, Lord, for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for healing me. Thank you for curing me of these, these things, Lord. That's what Jesus has provided. That's what God has provided through his son, Jesus Christ. We need to worship him more. We need to honor him more. We need to never forget what he's done for us. Let's pray. The only reason, Father, I can uh, call out to you right now is because the work of your son, Jesus Christ, the plan of salvation that was wrought before, before the foundation of the world. Nothing takes you by surprise. It wasn't like when Adam and Eve sinned that you said, oh, I got to come up with a plan now. You knew the plan. Jesus had volunteered to come. That's why it says the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. You knew you were messing with a, a, a lot of knuckleheads. These out in the audience might not think they're knuckleheads, but I know I'm one. And I'm glad you came for this one. Lord, may we understand as we read through the book of Hebrews who 
Jesus Christ is and how much he loves us and how much he has called us to himself because of that blood covenant on the cross. Lord, may we never put you aside a created being. May we never put you beside a created being. You're the creator of heaven and earth. You created everything. You are God almighty. Lord, we love you. Lord, and I pray that as we are studying your word on Wednesday and on Sunday and as we read it by ourselves through the week, Lord, that you would just come close to us, reveal your great love, reveal who you are to us more and more each day, Lord. May we become, our eyes become dim by the things of the world and be enamored, fall in love with you more and more each and every day, Lord. I pray for everybody here. I pray for the ones who are sick, that you would stop by and touch them, Lord, that you would encourage them as no one else can, Lord. Let them know that you draw near to the brokenhearted. Father, give us a heart to want to know you more. And I ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.